Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 17th, 2022. And as always, the headlines are all Ukraine. Everything's Ukraine. And indeed, today we are talking with Steve Pfeiffer, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. So our conversation is going to be about Ukraine. Before we get to Steve, I just want to briefly go over the headlines today. Survivors from the New York Times, survivors pulled out of the rubble of the Ukrainian theater um, from from the New York Times. The international politics are complicated. The Uh, Ukraine uh, President Zelensky has accused the Germans of letting Ukraine down uh, in the Wall Street Journal. There's desperation mounting as the Russians trying to take Mariupol. I don't think most of us had ever heard of Mariupol. Now it's etched into our minds. Um, The FT has an interesting weekend piece about the birth of a new Ukraine, how Russia's war united a nation. Uh, The Journal is running a piece about how the Russians have screwed up the military invasion. Um, And uh, there's an interesting piece also in the Journal about whilst people in Moscow might be unhappy with Putin in rural Russia, there's a lot of uh, support. So as I said, I'm thrilled that we have uh, Stephen Pfeiffer, who uh, now is affiliated with uh, Stanford and the Brookings Institute. His his day job essentially is as the um, William J. Perry Research Fellow at the Center for International Security at Stanford University. But he's the former ambassador, uh, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, so he knows a little bit about this stuff. He's incredibly busy, and I'm thrilled and honored that he's taken some time out of his day to talk to us on Keenon. Um, Steve, speaking on March 17th at uh, lunchtime, um, Pacific time. What, what, what's your reading of what's happening? What's the situation in very broad terms? Well, in very broad terms, um, the Russian military seems to be underperforming. Uh, certainly the Russians have taken heavy casualties and lost a lot of equipment, but they still have the bulk of their force. But remember, Ukraine, to win in this, they don't have to win. They just uh, have to not lose. And so far, they have doing doing remarkably well. They've displayed great tenacity and determination. And I think they have really surprised the Kremlin. The, the Kremlin did not expect this. At the same time, there are some kind of negotiations going on behind between Moscow and Kiev. Uh, but it's very difficult to see, at least publicly, the Russians yet being prepared to sort of make the compromises that would be need to be made uh, and accepting certain things that the Russians would have to do to end this conflict. Steve, you're talking to me from Stanford University, but you're a veteran of the East Coast. You're also affiliated with Brookings. You spent a lot of your life in Washington, D.C. What's the American game here? CNN headlines today show that Joe Biden called Putin a murderous dictator and pure thug. This was not articulated, obviously, in anger. It's carefully thought out. What are the Americans trying to do in terms of the situation? 
Well, I think the United States is basically trying to get Russia to end the conflict and, and, and end the war and bring its troops home. And you go back to early December after the first conversation in the last several months between Presidents Biden and Putin, you know, the White House is very clear. You know, we are trying to define for the Russians a diplomatic way to address some of their concerns. But also, if the Russians do invade, as the Russians now have done, there will be costs. And they articulated the cost in terms of more sanctions, in terms of even greater Western military assistance going to Ukraine, and in terms of NATO taking steps to beef up its presence on its eastern flank closer to Russian borders. And those things are happening now. Steve, what a difference two weeks make in a war. Two weeks ago, we did some interviews when the war broke out, March 2nd, with a couple of academics in Central Europe at the Central European University. They both talked about the West's moral failure when it comes to Ukraine. You don't hear that kind of talk anymore. I'm assuming that from the Western point of view, although we'll come to the German question later, it's been quite a good war over the last couple of weeks. Is that fair? Well, I guess I wouldn't call it a good war. I mean, thousands I mean, obviously, of no war is good, and I'm not yeah. talking. But, but, but in terms of the way they've managed it, yeah, I, I think the West has managed its response well. Uh, NATO has come together in a way that probably surprised the Kremlin. The sanctions were a big surprise. For example, I don't believe the Kremlin expected the sanctions on the Central Bank of Russia. Uh, but also this uh, flow of support. If you go back, say, two months, there was the United States, Britain, Poland, Lithuania, and maybe one or two other countries providing defense assistance to Ukraine. I think at last count, the number was more than 30 countries, and that's the bulk of the countries in NATO, and providing the Ukrainians with substantial numbers of weapons that will allow the Ukrainians to better defend themselves. You mentioned that the Ukrainians don't need to win. Uh, they just need to, to borrow some language from the BBC, fight the Russians to a standstill. Are, are you suggesting at this point they actually are, that they're, that this rearguard action against this massive invading army is actually fairly successful? Uh, I think so. I mean, my guess is if you'd asked most people prior to the war, they would have expected that three weeks into the war, the Russians would have been a lot further along. And it, it does appear that the Russians made some critical mistakes. Uh, so, for example, I believe that for the Russians, the number one target is Kyiv. That's the seat of the, Russia, of the Ukrainian government. It's the largest city in Ukraine. Uh, but their initial assault was with an airborne detachment that was flown in by helicopters and a couple of small units that really were not capable of taking over Kyiv. It's almost as if somebody in the Kremlin believed, you know, some of their propaganda that, you know, the Russian forces would be welcomed as liberators. And the Ukrainians defeated those units quite handily. And, and now it looks like the Russians are mobilizing a much larger force to try to encircle Kyiv. But there's even questions whether they have enough uh, manpower to actually do that. And on the other hand, the, the Ukrainians have been quite effective uh, using things like Javelin anti-armor missiles. Uh, by the count of the, uh, or the estimate of the Defense Department yesterday, more than 7,000 Russian soldiers have been killed. Um, that's a, that means that in just three weeks of fighting, Russia has lost half as many soldiers as the Soviet Union lost in 10 years in Afghanistan. Steve, do you then concur with the, the uh, with the with the Financial Times the idea that? This war has united a nation, not Russia, but Ukraine. Yes. Uh, presumably, 
not just Ukrainian speakers, but also Russian speakers within Ukraine. Spot on. Um, no, back in 2014, after Russia seized Crimea and then they legally annexed it and then provoked the conflict in Donbass, a Ukrainian fed said, told me, he said, you know, Vladimir Putin has succeeded where centuries of Ukrainian nationalists have failed is he's forged a sense of national identity here and imbued it with a strong sentiment against the Russian government. And, and that's only increased in the last several months, in the last three weeks. So the Ukrainian political spectrum is normally usually divided. Uh, two weeks ago, the head of the opposition bloc, that was the one overtly pro-Russian party in the Ukrainian parliament, came out and basically denounced the Russians and said, we fully support President Zelensky. That's united. The Ukrainian people are united. And bear in mind, you know, this horrible Russian assault on Mariupol. Uh, Mariupol is a predominantly Russian-speaking city. Uh, 40 to 45% of the population was ethnic Russian. They're now under siege by the Russian army. Uh, Steve, um, you mentioned the Ukrainian President Zelensky. as uh, an interesting piece on the Hill uh, today describing him as the right man at the wrong moment. Um, but he has become a, a folk hero in the United States, particularly, I think, amongst progressives. My old friend Franklin Foa has been on this show several times in The Atlantic, talks about his dream life. What do you make of Zelensky and his performance? Is he just a natural, politically, that is? Yeah, yeah Zelensky, I believe, has really stepped into the role that Ukraine needs right now. And part of it is a background. I mean, he was an actor both on television and in the movies. He was a comedian. He has a knack for knowing how to talk to audiences. And so the appeals I think he's made, we saw it to the uh, U.S. Congress yesterday. Uh, he's talked to other parliamentary bodies. He knows how to frame the issues in a way that I think strike home. Uh, he made very clearly on, or clear early on that he was going to remain in Kiev. Uh, you, know, you get these incredible contrasts in pictures where two weeks ago, the Ukrainians post a picture and here's Zelensky, you know, in his uh, green shirt, you know, wearing battle armor out having tea one morning with some Ukrainian soldiers. And you contrast that picture with Vladimir Putin, who's sitting 30 feet away from his minister of defense. I mean, there's, there's a real contrast there. And, and, and Zelensky has risen to the moment, and he's providing the leadership that I think the Ukrainians need now. He's certainly the most famous Ukrainian now in history, not just in 2022, but probably throughout history. What do you make of his public criticism of Germany? Is this politics as normal, or is there anger in his administration in Ukraine about the Germans supposedly letting Ukraine down, being too close to the yeah. Russians? There, I think, was frustration in Ukraine, which I can understand. And what the Ukrainians saw is for five decades, you know, Germany sort of pursued this special relationship with Russia. Um, and, of course, it was first the Soviet Union, then Russia after the collapse. And part of that, people say, that's because of German war guilt. You know, what Nazi Germany did to uh, Russia and the Soviet Union 80 years ago. But the Ukrainians are saying, wait, you know, Nazi Germany did that to us, too. In fact, on a proportional basis, more Ukrainians died uh, than Russians in World War II. Uh, and so I think there was that sense of frustration. It was, you know, Germany engaging with, um, with Russia, building these energy pipelines that were explicitly designed to move natural gas from Russia to Germany 
without having to go through Ukraine and then cut Ukraine out of the transit revenues. Uh, so I think there was that frustration. Although I guess I'd give the Germans some credit though. I mean, you saw two weeks ago in the span of about seven days, uh, the German government wipe away five decades of German policy. You know, first of all, you know, they they came out and they shut down the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. They said, that's not going to operate. They agreed to sanctions that would cut uh, <clears throat> Russian banks or some Russian banks off from SWIFT. Then they reversed a policy that goes back years, if not decades, of not exporting arms or transferring arms to conflict zones. They changed that policy specifically so that they could begin providing anti-aircraft missiles and anti-tank missiles to Ukraine. And then the next day, they basically bumped up their defense budget, uh, hitting the 2% goal, or they, this year they will hit the 2% goal that NATO asks of all countries to hit by 2024. And then they said, oh, and by the way, we're going to dump an additional 100 billion euros. That's the equivalent of two years of German defense spending into build-up defense. So I, I think Germany is changing. Uh, their eyes have been opened by what Putin has done and his decision to invade Ukraine. So I would, I would cut the Germans a little bit more slack than uh, President Zelensky did. BBC asks what Putin wants. Is he willing to end the war? We did a show with the war, the uh, Washington Post columnist, uh, expert on power, Brian Klass, a couple of weeks ago, asking uh, if, if we could take a scan of Putin's brain, what it would tell us. What is Putin up to? Is he a master who's lost his touch, Steve? A political master? Yeah, I, I think there are sort of three elements that I believe are driving Kremlin policy towards Ukraine. One is a geopolitical concern. The Kremlin clearly wants Ukraine in Moscow's orbit. But the point they seem to miss in the Kremlin is nothing has done more to push Ukraine away from Russia and towards NATO and towards the West than Russian policy of the past eight years. The seizure of Crimea and the Serbian conflict in Donbass before this invasion that killed 14,000 people. Uh, so that's one. But there's also, I think, a very and perhaps equally important domestic political factor here, which is for the Kremlin, the idea of a Western-oriented, democratic, economically successful Ukraine is a nightmare because that kind of Ukraine is going to cause Russians to say, wait a minute, why can't we have the same political voice, the same democratic rights that they have in Ukraine? And for the Kremlin, regime survival is job number one. They see that as a threat to their ability to remain in power. And then I think the third one is really uh, is Vladimir Putin who I think has changed in the last 10 or 15 years. He is now, I believe, more emotional. He's angry. Uh, that, I think, clouds some of his judgments between costs and benefits. Um, and he's especially emotional about Ukraine. Uh, he wrote this long essay last summer, uh, which describes the Ukraine that few historians would recognize and, and basically denies the right for a sovereign Ukrainian state to exist. So those three factors come together, and, and, and really it was at the end of the day Vladimir Putin's decision to launch a war of choice against Ukraine that triggered this war three weeks ago. Is there any possibility that he might be sick, not mentally but yeah. physically, and that he just doesn't really care anymore, he's got nothing to lose, um, and he's going down in flames and doesn't really yeah. bother him? I mean, some people are speculating on that. I mean, he does appear to be a little bit puffier in the cheeks than, than he was earlier. We just don't know. I mean, 
we don't have access to uh, his doctor's records or his medical records. Right. Uh, and Peter Pomerantz was on the show, the Russian analyst, suggesting the possibility of him being removed. We talked a couple of weeks ago. One piece that was, I thought, a little ominous was the, the journal piece about how um, locals in rural Russia, the backbone of the Putin regime, uh, blaming the West for the conflict, aggressively backing Putin. It reminds me, I had your Brookings uh, colleague Fiona Hill on the show recently talking, well, this was, of course, before the war, talking about her new book, There Is, there is Nothing For You Here, suggesting that the sort of po- the, the, the dark post-industrial landscape of Russia and America was similar. How angry are, do you think, the, that rural backbone of Putin's Russia uh, by what's happening? Well, I, certainly it's it's the rural areas where he gets his base constituency support. I think both Moscow and St. Petersburg tend to be much more liberal. And and polls right now show that the bulk of Russians support him and support the war in Ukraine. Uh, but I wonder, one, when the impact of the economic sanctions hits fully. I mean, the, the ruble is worth 40. Well, it's lost 40% of its value over the last two months. Russian stock markets have not opened up in the last two weeks, and it's not clear when they will open up because of the impact of the sanctions. That's going to be felt more broadly throughout the economy, and it's going to mean inflation and other economic difficulties. But the combination of that and then Russian casualties, with the estimate now being 7,000 Russians killed in action, a lot of those people in rural areas are going to see their sons and their husbands and their brothers coming home in body bags. And this is fighting a war against a people that Vladimir Putin has told them for years they're the same as us. So I do wonder if that begins to stir some concern uh, as this war drags on. Now, to be sure, uh, Putin has built a very autocratic system in Russia. But the Kremlin does do a lot of polling. They pay attention to public opinion. And do they begin to sense that opinion is shifting? Does that then cause the Kremlin to, uh, to reassess? We are speaking with Stephen Pfeiffer, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, amongst other things. He's currently associated with Stanford University, also the Brookings Institute. He was Bill Clinton's ambassador in, in, in Ukraine, uh, 1998 to 2000. We're going to take a short break, Steve, and then afterwards... I want to come back and briefly talk about your memories as the ambassador in Ukraine and what it was like, and then fast forward and imagine a world after this crisis. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with Stephen Pfeiffer, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Stay tuned, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. 
if you're into watching this as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Kino. We are back with Stephen Pfeiffer, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. As I suggested before the break, uh, Steve was Clinton's man in Kiev, uh, 1998 to 2000. Steve, do you have any particularly fond memories of this complicated country uh, bordering on so many different places, so central in the world in a sense, and yet also so small and peripheral in the broader globe? Yeah, no, one, uh, Kiev is a beautiful city. Uh, I, I don't like watching pictures now of uh, destroyed apartment buildings there or things like on Maidan Square, which is the center square in the city, now being fortified in anticipation of a possible Russian attack on the city. Uh, and Ukrainians are good people. They don't deserve this. You know, They have shown that they have a desire for democracy, they went into the streets in large numbers in the Orange Revolution, and then again in the Maidan Revolution. You know, they want to be able to live their lives like a normal European country. Uh, they want to be able to exercise democracy. And when I was there, most people didn't have a hostile attitude towards Russia. You know, there's now a very hostile attitude towards Russia, but that's been created by Russian policy in the last eight years. Steve, you're... Um both at, at Brookings, um, uh, you are the non-resident senior fellow in the Arms Control Non-Proliferation Initiative, and then at Stanford, um, you're the J. Perry Research Fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation. So you know a little bit about nuclear weapons. There's a there's a narrative, a story going around, perhaps less so now than at the beginning of the war, that the West had let the Ukrainians down when it came to them giving away their weapons. What is your explanation of that, of the negotiations in the post-Soviet Union in terms of yeah. nuclear weapons? Yeah. No, I, I actually took part in those negotiations when I was still in the government. Right. That's uh, why I'm asking you. Yeah. Ukraine had on its territory after the fall of the Soviet Union, the world's third largest nuclear arsenal. Ukraine was inclined to give that arsenal up. Uh, in fact, in their 1990 Declaration of State Sovereignty, they said Ukraine will be a non-nuclear weapon state. But they had certain questions. Uh, one was about who's going to help pay to eliminate the missiles and the bombers and the missile silos. And ultimately, the U.S. government said, you know, we'll do that. The great investment of American defense dollars was to get rid of those 2,000 Ukraine, 2,000 former Soviet nuclear warheads in Ukraine and get rid of the 175 missiles and the bombers and such. The other question the Ukrainians had was, well, there's value in the highly enriched uranium in the warheads. How do we get compensated? So we worked out a system where as the warheads went back to be disassembled, 
the Russians would then provide the Ukrainians an equivalent amount of low enriched uranium for the Ukrainian nuclear reactors. But the third question they had was, they said, look, weapons, nuclear weapons give you some security. What do we get when we get rid of the weapons? And so we negotiated what's called the Budapest Memorandum of Security Assurances. Uh, assurances is a very important word because when we told the Ukrainians uh, we were prepared to do things, we said, we can't call it the Memorandum on Security Guarantees. And that's because to American ears, if you say security guarantee, we're basically saying if there's a problem, the 82nd Airborne is coming. And neither the George H.W. Bush administration nor the Clinton administration was prepared to extend that kind of guarantee. But we did tell the Ukrainians in the negotiation of the assurances, if there's a violation by Russia, we're going to take our interest, we'll do things. Now, the memorandum says the United States, Russia, and also Britain committed to respect Ukraine's sovereignty, its territorial integrity, its independence, and they committed not to use force or threaten use force against Ukraine. Of course, the Russians have grossly violated all of that. Um, United States, we didn't invade Ukraine, but going back to the negotiations, you know, I think we made clear the case we were taking this, we would do things. Now, what didn't happen was we didn't have an extensive conversation about what the United States would do. And I think that reflected a failure, a reflected failure in Washington, but also a failure in Kyiv, is we didn't foresee in 1994 what happened in 2014 and certainly not what happened in 2022. And I think had the Ukrainians had a sense that that was coming, it would have been a very different negotiation. Steve, what do you make of there's a, a realist school of international politics in the United States, epitomized by John Mearsheimer? Uh, there's a New Yorker piece from a couple of weeks ago about him blaming the US for the crisis in Ukraine. I'm not sure that's entirely fair to him, but certainly this realist position that the Russians are behaving like a traditional great power is quite controversial. Is there any truth in that? Well, I, I disagree very much. And I, I uh, you know, if what you're seeing now is about Russian concerns about NATO, and the Russians have tried to frame this as a dispute between Russia and NATO before the war was launched. But there are five NATO members that now border either Russia proper or the Kaliningrad exclave on the Baltic Sea. The last one of those five to join NATO joined in 2004. Why didn't we have this crisis in the last 17 years? Moreover, in 2002, the Russian president, then Vladimir Putin, at a NATO-Russia summit, signed a document on reinvigorating relations between NATO and Russia, knowing full well that there was going to be a second NATO summit later that year that would invite other countries to join the alliance, including likely the Baltic states. He didn't have a problem with that then. Uh, the only countries to join NATO since 2004 have been in the Balkans, none of which is within a thousand kilometers of Russia. So I, I just don't see this. Moreover, when NATO enlarged, NATO tried to make it less threatening to Russia. So NATO said back in 1997, uh, there's no need to put substantial, there's no need for permanent stationing of substantial combat forces on the territory of new countries. And if you go to 2014, there were virtually no NATO ground forces in the Baltic states or Poland or Romania. That changed after 2014 when you saw Russia seize Crimea with its military and then provoke the conflict in Donbass. But even then, up until, you know, say, a month or two ago, 
you had a native force in each Baltic state of maybe 1,000 to 1,200 to 1,500 men, not a particularly large formation. So I just don't see this. And I think it's what you are seeing is driven much more by the Kremlin's view of Ukraine. And I wonder, in 2013, uh, Russia had a neutral Ukraine. It was in Ukraine's law then that they're non-bloc status. But Russia then put huge pressure on the Ukrainian president not to sign an association agreement with the European Union. And the Ukrainian president succumbed to that pressure, which triggered the Maidan revolution. So this is much more about Russia, Ukraine, and Russia wanting Ukraine really in a subservient status towards Russia than it is just about what NATO did. Steve, predicting the future of a war is fool's game and it's rather unpleasant business anyway. I'm not going to put you on the spot there, but thinking ahead a little bit, how do you think this war is going to be remembered? We had one show about thinking about Ukraine as the first global illiberalism versus liberalism war, Putin, of course, being the founding father of illiberalism in the world. And the other idea might be that Ukraine is the first global war about globalization itself. Are there any meta themes here beyond these territorial issues, beyond nuclear weapons, beyond NATO and a post-Soviet Russia? Yeah. Well, however this war ends, it's hard for me to see how Russia, in an objective sense, wins. So I won't predict. I, I still think it's a question of if Russia wins, not when Russia wins. Even though Russia has numbers and mass on their side, what the Ukrainians they'll have is tenacity, determination, and great courage. But let's say the Russian military defeats the Ukrainian military, and Russia occupies, say, the eastern two-thirds of Ukraine, and they occupy Kyiv. Presumably, they put in a pro-Russian government. That pro-Russian government can't last two minutes on its own. So the Russian victory, and I put that in quotation marks, is going to mean a long, expensive occupation by the Russian military of Ukraine. It'll be for years, if not decades. It'll be with a population that is nationalist, angry, hostile, and in some cases armed. There will be peaceful, passive resistance, and there will be violent resistance. At the same time, the Kremlin will find itself isolated from most of the rest of the world. And the Russian economy is going to continue to take hits from sanctions. And the, the most conservative estimate I've seen so far is that the Russian economy this year, as a result of the sanctions, if they stay on through the end of the year, will contract by about 7%. One estimate was 15%. I don't see how that's a victory for Russia. And, and my hope is that the Kremlin and maybe even Putin at some point conclude this is not a winning course. And then they try to negotiate something that will stop the killing uh, and, and, and get the Russian troops out. Uh, but I also think that however this thing resolves, there's going to be a distance between the West and Russia that's going to be around for a long time. Uh, you know, the hopes that we had, hopes that I had, I mean, I, I spent probably half of my career in the U.S. Foreign Service trying to work on better relations between Washington and Moscow. I think a lot of Europeans, even after 2014, a lot of Europeans cling to the hope you know, let's have, you know, a, a decent relation with Russia. I, I think a lot of eyes have been opened and it's going to take a long time to rebuild any confidence or trust or any relationship between the transatlantic community, United States, Canada and Europe and Russia. And that's really regardless of how this war ends. 
Well, thank you so much, uh, Stephen Pfeiffer, uh, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, a Stanford professor, Brookings fellow. Uh, finally, Stephen, two quick questions we always ask our guests on Keen On on the Lit Hub uh, radio network. Firstly, what are you reading at the moment? I know you are, you are, uh, you, you know, you're, this, this crisis, unfortunately, is dominating your life. You're spending most of it on, on, on television or on the radio or on the internet. But are there any books taking your mind off this stuff? Or are there books about mm-hmm. Russia or Ukraine we might read to learn well, a little bit more about the situation? Yeah. I'm just about done with uh, Chris Wallace's book on Countdown, which just talks about the days between uh, the death of Franklin Roosevelt and the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. And it looks at through the eyes of Truman and, you know, some of the scientists in the Manhattan Project and some of the people uh, in in the bomb group and also some of the people in Hiroshima. Uh, I have to confess, I've had a hard time finding reading it. I I did let... Last year, I finished a couple of books which are kind of relevant. One is by my Stanford colleague, Catherine Stoner. It's called Russia Resurrected, where she makes the case that despite a lot of um, pressures, that, that Putin actually has built a country that can exercise power in military terms. And we're seeing the Russians try to do that now. But I read it in, about the same time. I read another book called A Weak Strongman by Timothy Fry. I think he's at Columbia. Mm. And talking about the limitations on Putin. And if you kind of read those two books together, I think you get some nuance in terms of what Russian can do, what they can't do. You know, Russia is not 10 feet tall, you know, but they're also not two feet tall. It's somewhere in the middle. And those books, I think, kind of balance out nicely. We'll get both those authors on the show. Finally, finally, Stephen Pfeiffer, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Who runs the world uh, in mid-March 2020, Steve? I think it's a whole bunch of people, and unfortunately, they have very conflicting ideas about what kind of world they want, which is why, you know, we've got a lot of work to do on the diplomatic side and in other areas.